Well, good evening, everybody. Glad to have you out here and those who are online as well. We look forward to uh, your questions for us. And so we haven't done a question and answer in some time. Um, so it uh, feels good to be able to do this again. And uh, these kind of things also help keep us on our toes and make sure we have to stay sharp. Um, so that being said, what we'll do is we will open in prayer and then uh, we'll take it straight to the questions. Pastor John, would you like to open us in prayer? Of course. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. Lord, just to be able to gather in your name this evening um, on this Lord's Day. Lord, I just pray that, Lord, just some of the questions, Lord, that are that may be on our brothers and sisters' hearts, Lord God, so much has happened in this past year. Um, and Lord, there's always questions, Lord Father, to be asked. And I just pray that, Lord, just me and Pastor Steve will just be able to answer these questions from not only the biblical worldview, Lord, but with great wisdom, um, filled with great um, practical um, truth, Lord, to help them, Lord, not to only understand the significance um, of how these questions should be answered biblically, but, Lord, how they can live in light of it, Lord Father, in their lives as Christians. And so, Lord, I just pray that this will be a time of um, of, of growth, um, will be very fruitful, and just to help clarify people's questions, Lord, so that, God, they can just um, be, be more um, strengthened in their faith as they live out their faith as Christians, Lord, here in this world. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time they were able to do this, and we just set up this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as usual, um, what we normally do is we give priority to those who are here. Um, so if you're here and you have a question, we have a microphone in the back. That way your question gets picked up on the audio file. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll take the questions our folks have here, and then if there's any uh, quiet spots, then uh, we'll go to the online questions. All right, looks like Yosef is uh, ready to go. First things first, are we limited on the amount of questions we can ask? No. Okay, awesome. I, I would only say this. Let's say there's a line of people. Um, instead of asking like 50 of them, you know, you ask yours, then you get back in line. And But yeah, in that sense, there's no like, you know, two questions per person limit. No. As, <laughs> as many as we got time for, we'll take. Copy that. All right. Um, well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you so much for this. I didn't know it was a question and answer tonight, so I'm, I'm truly blessed uh, to be here. I always have many, many questions. But I want to start off with this one that's kind of mostly in our Christian climate right now. It seems that though every religion obviously has this whole kind of workspace mentality, you got to do enough good and hope that your good outweighs the bad and you'll make it to heaven or euphoria or whatever it is. And we know that it's only by Christ alone. It's because of him and his righteousness and what he did for us on that cross, died, buried, and rose again for us that we are saved and through him. And he paid it all. But in our culture, or our climate, our Christian climate, it seems that most Christians are asking that question, how do I really know that I'm saved? And it's a very common one. And despite having numerous resources and answers for it, it's still one of the most top leading questions. So what do you think is the main reason a lot of Christians, maybe in America or however you want to put it, are, are asking that? Is it maybe just they're struggling with sin or maybe they're really in sin? Just what do you think it is? Can I ask a, a follow-up question on your question just to know exactly um, what you're honing in on? So yeah. you brought up first that all the religions of the world focus on works, mm -hmm. and then you're asking about um, pretty much believers that lack assurance. Um, are those, are, are you connecting those? Do you want me to address both of those or um, you kind of given the answer sort of up front in the, the way the question was framed? I apologize. Um, I'm basically asking it because 
everybody else, for example, is working and trying so hard and praying three times all day and stuff like that. Our salvation has been done for us, and sure. yet we should be the ones that are so secure. But it seems to be in our current climate that that we're not for some reason. I just want to know why that possibly Got it. is. Okay, good, good question. Good question. Um, I think this has a really, really easy answer. Um, but first, let me just state the problem. The problem is Christianity in our country is very shallow. Um, most churches are shallow. Most sermons are shallow. Um, around the turn of the century, and I don't mean the turn of the 21st century. I mean the turn of the 20th century. Um, our country really embraced this idea of pragmatism and the churches followed suit and embraced the idea of pragmatism. How do you put more um, people in the seats? How do you fill the pews? Well, you don't teach doctrine. You move from chapter by chapter expositional preaching to topical needs felt preaching. And what happens is doctrine gets lost and you end up with a, a very superficial Christian culture. And uh, that's that's the big part of the problem because there's just not enough expositional churches out there. If the preaching is expositional, I think the people who attend those churches would catch these truths more and they would struggle with assurance less. So that's the problem. Now to the simple short answer, and I promise it'll be short. There's an objective and subjective uh, component to this question. Objective means it's real, it's real outside of you. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It's just objective fact. And the fact is this, the gospel, Jesus Christ earned perfect righteousness. Those who believe in him get the credit of his perfect score. At the exact same time, he took the, all the sins of those who believe in him and fully paid the penalty. That's just an objective fact. He died on the cross. Those sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west, they are gone. It is as if they've been thrown in a black hole and do not exist anymore because Jesus paid it all to all to him I owe, right? We sing these songs of truth, but I think people tune them out and are just on autopilot. But the fact is the objective reality is we have perfect righteousness and we have total forgiveness. Um, I think people lack assurance because it is not preached enough. Uh, I'm taking a church revitalization course and one thing that they, they hit again and again for churches that are declining, the people might know the gospel, they've heard it before, they need to hear it again and again and fall back in love with it because they forget those truths. And so then what happens is they focus on the subjective. They focus on their performance. And let's be real. Every time we look in the mirror, if we're happy with our performance as Christians, I think we underestimate our sin. But I think a lot of us aren't underestimating our sin. We look in the mirror. We're like, man, I keep failing. I'm not doing enough. I don't evangelize enough. And, and, and so what happens is because we focus on that subjective side, we start to wonder if we're saved. So what I would say is bring people back to the beauty of the gospel. Let's start with what's objective. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. And God says very clearly, if you believe on him, you're saved. If you believe on Jesus, you're saved. That's the objective fact, whether you feel like it or not. And then the subjective side, the good deeds we're supposed to do, those serve as a reinforcement to that objective fact. So again, my answer would be 
ground them back in the objective reality of the gospel and then press them onto those good works because if they're walking in those good works, it reinforces the fact that they are saved. If they never do good works, they should be doubting that they accepted the, the objective fact. So bring them back to that fact, bring them back to the gospel, call them to repent, call them to believe, and then again afterwards call them to those good works. That is the best way, I think, to deal with the epidemic of the lack of assurance. Great answer. Thank you. Uh, Pastor John, you got anything to add or? I can't. I'm be beating a dead horse. I think I was good, brother. Okay. Yes. Next question. The wise beard. Good evening. <laughs> good evening, brother. Okay. Uh, question is with regards to women pastors. Okay. What? Um, I know that. Huh. What's that? No, I'm just kidding, sir. <laughs> I, I know there are some churches that, you know, um, have women pastors. And I wanted to hear from you what is the best uh, way to explain, uh, you know, that it is not prohibited. I know that in Timothy, Titus, you know, the, you know someone who is uh, called to be a, a, a bishop, you know, it's, it's basically geared towards the men. Uh, and then also in Corinthians, uh, Paul was saying that, uh, you know, he was not allowing women to speak in the, in the church. However, in uh, Corinthians uh -oh. 11. 11, yeah, where it actually talks about, you know, every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered. Can you kind of cover those, those verses? Yes. Because these arguments are being made that, you know, no, it's not prohibited. Absolutely. I remember I, I covered that when I preached through 1 Corinthians, but that was a long time ago. Um, but since I took the last one, I will at least, uh, we should throw this bone to, uh, <laughs> to the, the young one, yeah, Pastor so John. Definitely a lot of aspects to the question. I, I guess I'll start with just, you know, what does the Bible say about women being pastors or functioning as the office of elder? Because um, that is the role that the Bible does proclaim that, you know, to be a pastor is not just a title, um, but it is an office in the church alongside deacon. And I think first and foremost, it's kind of clarifying that, especially like in our circles as Southern Baptists. Um, shoot, we just went to the New um, the, the, um, the Southern Baptist State, um, National Convention in New Orleans, and this was a big hot topic about really trying to clarify, um, like, what does it mean to be a pastor, an elder? You know, is it a title that we can give to women who just, you know, just teach at Sunday school classes, disciple young children, um, disciple, you know, ladies and stuff like that? Or is this something that, you know, they can be legitimate pastors? And the, the whole point of the debate was like, no, we need to bring clarity um, according to what the scriptures say, that when you call someone a pastor, even in our own culture, people think of an elder. People think of someone who is the one who's leading the church, someone as an office holder. And so I think first and foremost, um, going back to passages like 1 Timothy chapter um, 3, um, chapter 2, Titus, and they really clarify that when, it, when we talk about pastor and elder, these are offices um, that God has given to the church alongside deacon um, to help create order in the church so that, you know, the gospel could be preached, the, the body of Christ could be built up, um, and that the gospel will be proclaimed. So I think just clarifying that is, is so important, especially in a lot of, you know, the, just the lack of confusion um, in our culture. But with that in mind, what, is, what does the scripture say on this topic? And I think Paul is very clear um, in First Timothy that this office is reserved for men. And I'll just read, I'll just read a passage that he says in First Timothy chapter 2. 
um, starting in verse 12 to 14, he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing, and if they continue in faith and love and holiness of self-control. And so, so looking at those passages, verses 12 to 14, Paul's ultimately making an argument that the woman is not to preach um, with the authority of elder on a Sunday, like on a Sunday service, for example, because that's going against um, the the creation order or the design that God has given in creation. Um, And and what Paul's getting at is that, you know, when God first made Adam and Eve, he clearly says that God made Adam first, and then he made Eve as a helper. Not that Adam was more better than Eve, um, or Eve was was inferior. Um, both were equal um, as 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 image bearers of God. Yet both have both have individual roles to complement one another. You know what the man has, the woman doesn't have, and what the woman has, the man doesn't have. Right, and that's why you know going into God's model of marriage, it is between a man and a woman because you know this was meant to complement each other in that in that marriage role. And when you look at the marriage role, um, it's the man who is to lead the wife, and the wife um, is to be in submission to the husband, and, and, and the husband is, 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 is to be the leader as Christ loved the church, whereas, you know, the woman or the wife is to um, follow the, the, the leadership of the husband um, as Christ, or as the church follows Christ and stuff like that. That's the pattern um, that the scriptures tell us um, about marriage, about the order, order of creation, and that's kind of what Paul's kind of tap into here in in, in first timothy um and 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 to say that all right and despite that creation order um to now then say that oh women have the um the the authority to become pastors um that would be going against um the creation order of what god has said are the roles for male and female um or as or as in this case the office of elder being reserved only for men not because men are better um and women are inferior but because this this is something that taps into the into the roles that belong to each gender of male and female as God has ordained it in creation so that's kind of what Paul is saying um in first Timothy um now the issue regarding um and even by me saying I got to be careful I'm not saying that just because a woman can't be a pastor doesn't mean she can't teach. You know, I I I believe that a woman has the right um, to you know to lead small group studies with other women, little children, and stuff like that. To speak at a conference, to be missionaries, even to be seminary professors. But to hold that that office, that authority of elder, I think that's the only um, the thing that's off the table. Because again, um, that's something that taps into the 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 different roles that goes back into creation between male and female. And so that's kind of what Paul is saying in First Timothy. And some of the things I would um, discuss. Um, with a person who asked me that question. But regarding the First Corinthians passage, um, let's see if you have anything else to add on this, brother. I can hand that to you if you don't mind. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I want to dissect this a couple of different ways, but I, I could start with First Corinthians, right? Um, I, I think they're talking, not I think, I know they're talking about two different things, right? In First Timothy, he is specifically getting into the question of who could be a pastor and what are their qualifications? As, as Pastor John very well explained. The end of First Timothy 2 makes it very clear. And then the start of First Timothy 3 rolls right into the qualifications of who can be a pastor, who can be an elder. First Corinthians isn't talking about that. Um, and so the, the, the quick answer on that, like First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, envisions women praying and prophesying in the church. 
And if, if you were to look at that passage and say, well, it must be only to other women, it doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say that. In fact, the, the issue that he's bringing up there is that they can't do it if they're doing it in a way that's not submissive to their husbands. But if they're wearing the, the head covering, which in that culture was the same as a wedding ring and taking your husband's last name, it's showing the symbol of authority over you, the headship of your husband. As long as they're not rebelling against that, then in the church context, um, they were able to prophesy and pray. And so then the question is, what do we do with chapter 14? Chapter 14 is, is actually very clear when you look at the structure of it. If you just go to that passage that says, let the women be silent, yeah, it sounds like, you know, women, you know, shut your yappers. You're not allowed to talk in church, but read the chapter closely. They are the third group that Paul says, let them be silent. First, he tells the tongue speakers, you know, if um, there's no interpreter, let them be silent. And then when he talks to the prophets in the church, he says, you know, if uh, somebody else then has a prophecy, let the first one talking, let them be silent. Then it rolls to the women, let them be silent, right? So three different groups that are being commanded to be silent in the context of corporate worship. That's what chapter 14 is all about. Dealing with the issue of disorderly worship services. So whatever the women were doing in that context was just as disorderly as people blabbering in tongues that no one can understand. And just as disorderly as 10 people saying, I have a word from the Lord and all trying to talk over each other. And so probably the best idea is um, the, the women are standing up and challenging the prophets um, and, and they're just making... Uh, making a scene out of it and it's disorderly. So it's like, look, if you got an issue, ask your husband at home. But the fact that you have three, let there be silent statements in that same chapter means women are not being singled out there. And given that the context is order in the worship service, whatever they're being told to be quiet about, it has to deal with order. Um, and then again, you go back to chapter 11, it's presupposed that in a church context, they, they may pray or prophesy, whatever prophesying means, right? That's a whole nother debate in and of itself. Um, so that one is rightly to be taken away from the question, can a woman be a pastor? Because it's not addressing that. So when these egalitarians, and an egalitarian is someone that thinks women can be pastors, when they go to 1 Corinthians 11.5 to say, see, they could be a pastor, that is not what it's addressing. That is a dishonest uh, appeal to that scripture. So I think that being said, 1 Corinthians as a whole could be removed from this question since it's not addressing it. First Timothy is absolutely addressing it. And what it says, it, it lays down the hammer on this. Now, of course, you're going to hear people say, yes, but after the resurrection, who were the first people Jesus appeared to? Women. And he sent them to go preach to the brothers to tell them the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, great. Nobody's saying a woman can't preach the gospel and tell others that Jesus rose from the dead. Nobody's saying a woman can't be an evangelist or a missionary. They should be, right? We're all supposed to, to um, tell people about Jesus and our risen Lord. There's nothing in that that, again, speaks of the office of pastor. So they appealed to that falsely. Um, and, and to what John was saying, look, every gift of the Holy Spirit, every single one without exception, is given to both genders, Okay, whether we're talking about generosity, whether we're talking about um, preaching, teaching, we all got the gifts, right? Every, both genders have the gifts, but the office, there's one office, as Pastor John was saying, that is forbidden from them. But we know women can teach, 
We know that women could go out and, uh, and can preach to other women. We know that they can uh, uh, preach to a, a mixed group of unbelievers, hoping uh, that they would come to the Lord. I think of Lottie Moon, who brought a lot of Chinese people to the Lord because there were no men missionaries over there, um, or not enough. And so, so that being said, and we also see in Acts, I believe, 17, uh, but my, my chapter reference might be wrong. It might be 18, possibly even 19, definitely before 20. But Apollos needed to be corrected. And it says Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and showed him more clearly the way. Now, the fact that it mentioned Priscilla first shows that she took a little more dominant of a role in that because that's what... In, biblical narrative when you have two people mentioned again and again the one who's mentioned first is the more prominent one his wife was more prominent than him in this sense now it might be she was more gifted at explaining the gospel whereas he might have been like the super encourager who knows but they were able to take apollos aside together outside of a corporate worship service and show him the gospel more clearly, because that's what it was. He wasn't understanding the gospel. He didn't know about Jesus yet. He only knew about uh, John, uh, John's baptism. So that being said, we have so many examples of women teaching, so many examples of women doing great things in the scripture. Um, but we have a passage right here that clearly said they are not permitted to uh, teach or have authority over men in the context of the local church. And then Paul rolls into the qualifications for pastor. He says, uh, if any man aspires to be a pastor or elder, he's, uh, um, he's, it's a noble aspiration. And then the person must be the husband of one wife. He must manage his household well. Um, all these things are issues that fall upon men. There's no way you could get around this. It is what it is. Uh, now, the tricks they try to do with 1 Timothy 2.12 to try to say, well, what he's really saying is women can't teach in a domineering way. They say that's what the Greek means. No way. It absolutely cannot because you have uh, an infinitive and a coordinating conjunction, and I'm not going to you know, go into too many details about that, but what it's getting at is exactly how our translations translate it. They're not permitted to do these two things, teach or have authority over a man in the context of the local church. And so, really, uh, case closed. We just have to be very, I think, precise because there's a lot of noise that's thrown into this. So when they throw 1 Corinthians in and they add Priscilla and Aquila and then they try to bring up Phoebe and their conjecture about her reading the letter of Romans and they try to say Junia was an apostle and they start bringing all this stuff in. Mary Magdalene was the first gospel preacher. You have to understand all those are not even talking about the question of who can be a pastor or who could be an elder or an overseer. So I think that's the, the best route to take it. And uh, final, final thing I would say is um, some of the confusion that we are facing in our denomination is because there are churches that want to use the title pastor, but not the title elder. They want to separate these titles and they want to use the title pastor for women as long as they're not the senior pastor. So if they say a woman is running a children's ministry, well, you know, if, it, if it's a guy, we would call him the pastor of children. Yet when it's a woman, now we're calling her the, the ministry director of children. You know, well, she's doing the exact same thing that the guy would be doing. And so why not just let her 
have the title pastor because uh, it means shepherd and she's shepherding. Here's the problem with that. First, the scripture two different times uses elder, overseer, attached with the verb for pastor together. These are interchangeable. One time, Ephesians chapter four, pastor teacher is used officially, not as a verb, but as a title, but it's clearly standing in the place of elder or overseer. It's talking about the same thing. Therefore, we cannot separate pastor from elder. They're the same thing. When we take that title and apply it to somebody who is unqualified, we're going against the scripture. Even if functionally they're not acting like overseers, doesn't matter. We're confusing people. We're confusing. And there's this one, how do I put this delicately? I'm not going to put it delicately. There, the, the church that hosted the California Southern Baptist annual meeting this year um, was calling women pastors of these lower ministries. And once our denomination in New Orleans said, you can't do that anymore, he, the senior pastor made it to where the women can't call themselves pastors anymore, but he also made it to where the men can't call themselves pastors. So they all just call themselves ministers. That man is a, for lack of a better term, he's just a squish. That's the word going around. No spine, no backbone. You could tell what it is. Well, if you can't use the word pastor, then none of us will. We're in solidarity together. That is baloney. Okay, pastor is an appropriate term for a man who is overseeing the church. It is never an appropriate title for a woman. And if somebody's like, yeah, but you have these, these subgroups of churches, like, for example, um, uh, the, the National African American um, Church Church, within the Southern Baptist Convention, there's the uh, National Association of African-American Churches. Um, They protested what happened in New Orleans um, when we kicked Rick Warren out and and pretty much said that um, that, uh, you can only use the the term pastor for, for men that are qualified. They said, listen, a lot of our churches traditionally use this word for women that run these smaller ministries, but they're not overseeing. My simple answer is, I don't care. We have to conform ourselves to what the scripture says. How does this scripture use the word pastor? That is how we should use it. Plain and simple, we claim as Protestants, we believe in semper reformanda, meaning we're always reforming according to the scripture. If somebody could show me that one of our practices here does not violate or does violate scripture, I don't care how long we've been doing it, we have to X that and make it conform and match to scripture. It's that simple. And so hopefully that answers your question with a degree of clarity. So this one's from uh, YouTube. So I just thought I would kind of get to some of those. And there's one that we have on Facebook too. So this one comes from uh, Karina um, Untiveros and she's asked, do we know if we will be married in heaven and still be family members like on earth? I know we are uh, Christ, all Christ's children. Well, John's already turning his Bible to the, the relevant passage. Um, 
as he's doing that, he'll prove what I'm saying when he gets there. But the answer is no, we will not be married in heaven. Because multiple times Jesus says at the resurrection, there will be no marriage. Uh, that was the trap that the Sadducees tried to trap him with. That, you know, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they tried to say, all right, well, the law of Moses says if a man marries a woman and they have no offspring and he dies, then his brother has to marry her. Um, and let's pretend a woman went through seven brothers and had no children. She was the wife of all of them, had conjugal relations with all of them. Whose wife would she be at the resurrection? And Jesus is like, you err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. We will be like angels at the resurrection, neither marrying nor given in marriage. So the, the answer to that question is no marriage in heaven. Will we still be families? I think so. It says Abraham was gathered to his people when he died. It says Isaac and Jacob were gathered to their people. Um, that's a, a refrain that happens a lot in the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 7, before the great white throne of God, we see every nation, tribe, and tongue. So if you think about it, what is a nation? It's, it's a series in tribe. It's a series of clans. What's a clan? A series of families. For the these distinctions to still be recognizable, then the basic building block of the family still has to exist. It's just going to exist without marriage, but your kin is still your kin. Um, so yeah, all that stuff's going to be there. We're still going to know our, our, our siblings, our former spouse. We're going to know them. We're going to know them in, in a perfect way because we're going to be resurrected and there's going to be no sin. But this this relationship of marriage, which paints the picture of the gospel, will not be necessary there because the gospel will have been finally actualized there. Furthermore, the purpose of having dominion through having children will also not be needed there because there's going to be multitudes of us who are immortal that will fill this whole new creation. Um, so, yeah, like, yeah, all that, uh, in, in my opinion, is pretty clear. I'll pass it on to John to then prove what I have stated. Yeah, the passage is um, there's one Matthew twenty two twenty three to thirty three. That's where you know the Sadducees asked Jesus that question. And just to kind of piggyback on just like how marriage is a picture of the gospel, um, you know, again, you know, the wife is is, is is as as Paul says in Ephesians five, right? It's a great mystery that this picture is. You know, uh, the husband is like Christ. Um, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and the 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 then the wife is to submit to the husband, you know, as as Christ as the church submits to Christ. Um, that picture is going to be realized in heaven, and so the reason why marriage, that relationship, is going to be unnecessary because we're all going to be reunited as the church as the bride to the bridegroom Jesus and so what marriage is meant to teach us and the purpose of marriage of being fruitful and multiplying of creating more image bearers um, to glorify God on this earth that's going to be realized in the new heavens and the new earth and so where we're the picture of the gospel is to teach us these realities now um, for those who um, make it to the new heavens and the new earth we're actually going to experience that um, and so why have marriage if we're experiencing what marriage points to and that's to have a relationship face-to-face -face with King Jesus himself, which is really a beautiful reality when you think about it. Good question. Next. <laughs> Round two. Hello again. Um, this is this question comes from First uh, John chapter 5. A lot of people might be familiar with this one. I, I don't kind of believe I ever got a real good answer for this. So I just wanted to ask this now. In 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 16, talking about uh, the sin that leads to death. I'll just read the, the verses. It says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. 
I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Well, what is that sin that, um, one that we don't have to pray for, I guess it says? The sin, I'm not saying that anyone should pray about that. And then um, at the very end, a sin that doesn't lead to death. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is uh, mortal and venial sins. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but that's where Roman Catholicism goes with this, um, and, and it's not correct. Um, you know, there's a, a number of different ways to take this. I think that when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, when we look at Nadab and Abihu, when we look at First um, Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says people who are abusing the Lord's Supper, he said, some of you have become sick because of this. Some of you have even fallen asleep, meaning God killed some believers for really blaspheming the Lord's Supper and, and not repenting of it. Um, he did the same to Ananias and Sapphira for their deception. There, there are just some times, like the way I've heard it explained, is that because we believe that uh, we believe in perseverance of the saints, that if there's a real believer who is so doggone determined to keep with the sin and not repent, since Jesus cannot lose even one that the father gave him, then God will kill a person before he will let them fully apostatize. So maybe a person's hearted themselves so much that, all right, now it's at the point where, you know, if they're really a believer, God's going to kill them before they could deconstruct um, if they don't repent. That is one possibility. Uh, another possibility is uh, since the context of 1 John is about apostasy and people falling away, he could be saying, look, the one who's fallen away and completely renounced Jesus or is denying that he came in the flesh, don't even pray for that person anymore. They've, they've blasphemed God. You know, they, 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 you know, pray for those who are still in the church. You know, um, but then some might say, well, the problem with that is he's talking about a brother here. Um, so maybe it's not dealing with the apostates. This is a passage that has bewildered interpreters for 2000 years. So I can't say that I know 100 percent. But if I had to chime in on it, the only thing I can think of is given that the New Testament gives us examples of believers being disciplined by God with physical death. I think it's talking about that. Um, some will say, no, it's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know. I don't know if that one works um, because I don't know if it's possible to commit blasphemy with the Holy Spirit anymore. But that's a, a different topic for a different time. But yeah, that, that's my, my two cents on it. Kind of along the same lines, I think just I think the context to First John is, is important because you think of like the whole reason why John writes his letter because he's writing to these churches in Ephesus, all these, all these Christians or supposed confessing Christians abandoned the faith and the people who stayed and are, and are persevering are like, what, what has happened? Like, how do we deal with this? And he's, and you know, John is like little children, you know, those who left us, if they were really of us, they would have kept, they, they would have kept with us. But the fact they're not of us anymore, they were never from us to begin with. And he says that in first John um, 219, I believe. And, and, and I think when I look at a passage like this, keeping that context and what Steve has said is mine, is that, you know, although as Christians, yes, we, are, we do sin, we do fall short, you know, it's, as Martin Luther said, we're at the same time justified, we're declared right before God, but we still sin because we're still being more like Jesus each and every single day. Although we will sin, that, those are sins that because we abide in Christ and we're becoming more like him, although we still sin, 
and we will die physically, it's not a sin that leads to eternal death, whereas these apostates who, who are never from God in the first place, they're never true believers, their sin, it will lead to their, to their eternal death. And so, so keeping the context of 1 John, um, that's one way how I, how I, how I have always read um, that passage. Um, and, and, and on top of um, some of the examples of what um, Pastor Steve said about like Ananias and Sapphira, Nehadab and Abihu, all those unique examples um, throughout the Bible. Copy that. Thank you, gentlemen. Good question. Next. I got another one. Um, well, a brief follow-up to Karina's. So children that are miscarried, will we know them? Maybe that, you know, parents that had kids on earth, but they miscarried. Will we recognize them, I guess, in heaven? I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I see no reason why we wouldn't. Um, they're conceived, so they're a human being made in the image of God. They were called into glory uh, before they actually sinned. Um, and so because of that, they'd be safe. And, uh, and so my assumption is time works there like it works here, so the child grows. Like at least the soul, the immaterial part of the child grows um, so, I mean, I've had, we've had two miscarriages. I, I forgot how long ago, but I, I would think that in heaven we have, um, like a 12 year old and a, and a nine year old. Mm -hmm. Um, and if 10 years from now, it'll be a 22 year old and a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. uh, but at some point there's going to be, um, a reunion. That's the word I'm looking for. There's going to be a reunion and, and yeah, I, I see no reason why we wouldn't, why we wouldn't know them. Um, it just wouldn't make sense that we wouldn't. Um, so this next one comes from uh, Fernando Medina, and he says, is there such a thing as a non-resistant non-believer, people who are honestly seeking for God but can't find him or find a different God than the God of the Bible? Good question. Do you want to take that one first? I can tackle it. And so... If I understand the question correctly, um, brother, a brother is asking that, you know, is it ever possible for an unbeliever who is in a state of not being, not confessing faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, is it ever possible that, you know, that they, that they are trying to seek God, but then they don't find him? And if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, um, if people are truly seeking after God, then God would make himself known to, known to that person one, because God has revealed himself in general revelation, in creation, um, and the whole point of creation is to help humanity point to that there is a creator God, that everything comes from him, and the only reason why someone wouldn't find God or be reconciled to this God in heaven who made all things is because they chose not to believe in God. They would rather do their own thing, and the only reason why I say that, because I think Paul is very clear in his answer in Romans chapter 1, just to read one verse here in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. And he continues writing in the next verse, For what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so I think for any person who is truly desiring to know the God of the Bible, God has made himself in creation so that if they do realize their sin and they do realize that there's a God that they have sinned against, which can only be revealed, I believe, you know, by God's prompting by the Holy Spirit, then they will find God because 
God first knew them. God, God first elected them to be saved. And because they have that inner awareness, um, they will be saved. And they will find God. They will experience repentance. And they will come to faith in him. The only reason why Saul would is because, as it says here, God has made it clear that he does exist and that there is salvation to be found in him alone. And yet they suppress the truth and, 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 and they reject the gospel, not because there wasn't enough evidence for God, but because they chose not to believe in him in the first place. And so, so that's kind of how I'll answer that question. There's a couple more layers to that, but he didn't ask um, how he asked the question. That's how I'll go about it. If you want to add anything else to that, brother. Yeah, I'll, I'll add a little bit. Um, in reform circles, this this is an issue that comes up. Is there a person, unregenerate, who can seek God? And every Calvinist in the cage stage would say, absolutely not. And you'd be like, how do you know? And they'd be like, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 10 and 11. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And of course, that's quoting both Psalm 14 and um, Psalm 53 or 54. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it says right there, no one seeks God. But then you get passages like when Paul is preaching to the Athenians in the Areopagus. Um, these were people who want, they invited him up there to preach the gospel. So he says in Acts 17, starting in verse 26, he says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our own being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Um, so Paul is telling an audience that invited him to preach the gospel, that God has left these witnesses so that people could seek him and find him. Right. And, and so what some people say is like, well, he did this so they could seek him, but they still can't seek him. But Paul's not saying that there. So I think this ends up being one of those situations where either a we need to go to some other passages to bring these two together or b we need to think with both hands. Right. Uh, learn to think with two hands that sometimes the scripture gives us um, two truths. They are equally true, but they're paradoxical and it's hard to put them together now. I would think, I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy's on his way to Jerusalem. He spent some big bucks on an Isaiah scroll. He wanted to know the truth. And then as John said, God sent somebody to show him the truth. So the question is, is this an unbeliever on his own that's just non-resistant that is seeking, as Fernando says, um, or is there more to it? Well, I do know Jesus in John 6, says no one can come to him unless the father draws him. So there has to be that drawing, okay? There, there, there has to be that drawing, and maybe that drawing is what makes a non-believer non-resistant. I do know that there was a six-month period where I was being drawn, and I was not resistant, and I was open to everything that somebody would tell me from the Bible, and it culminated with me being saved. But I believe theologically it's because at that point the Lord started drawing me, and had that not happened, I think I probably would have still been resistant like I was before that time. So again, the way he asks the question, sure, there's non-resistant seekers. But the reason there's non-resistant seekers is there's people who are being drawn. Um, 
And, and, and sure, no one seeks God. But at the exact same time, it's true that God left a witness so that people would seek him. Um, and so the way I put this all together is no one comes to the Father except, uh, or no one comes to the Son except unless the Father draws him. Um, so hopefully that answers that question to some satisfaction. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, actually, I had another question um, in regards to a sermon I heard from uh, Pastor James White um, on the internet before. He was basically talking about uh, Christians that serve out of love and Christians that serve kind of out of a sense of duty. And kind of, um, obviously, I love James White, uh, and I listen to a lot of his stuff. He kind of condemned those that kind of serve out of duty. And I was thinking to myself, I, I definitely just examining myself, and I'm, I'm up here ready to receive correction if, if it comes to that, so feel free to go for it. Um, I believe, obviously, in loving my neighbor, going out and sharing the gospel out of love for my neighbor, but I also believe in just like, you know, basic catechisms, you know, that why are we existing created? To glorify God and enjoy him always. So we also have, he said, go, make disciples, you know, roger that. So that I believe there's kind of a both and there. And I have this passage in Luke that I was reading, and I believe it kind of, you know, um, helps my argument for being both love and duty. But I wanted to, uh, you, to just kind of read it and you let me know whether I'm interpreting this correctly in light of what I uh, just said. Um, it's uh, Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 7 uh, down to 10. And it says, this is Jesus talking, says, Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. Does that kind of back up my argument? Am I completely missing a mark with that? No, I mean... You just quoted Jesus telling us to obey and then not pat ourselves on the back and say we've only done our duty. Um, I am not saying James White is wrong. I think what he is getting at is he's talking about those who only serve because of duty. You know, you have some people who, for one reason or another, their approach to God is legalistic. It's legalism. I need to do this, 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 and this. My whole um, status as a Christian is dependent on me doing my duty. And if they're doing it as duty rather than as fealty to God out of the relationship they have with God, you know, love of God and love of neighbor, if, if it's only duty, it's wrong, right? I don't think these are opposed to each other. It's kind of like people are like, well, you know, are you for the law? Or are you for the gospel? And I'm almost like, am I for God or am I for Jesus? Am I for oxygen or am I for water? You know, the, the, the thing is, the, the law is never presented as opposite to the gospel. Um, it's never presented as opposite to faith. And, and that's what, you know, I, I think I've been seeing more and more as I've been going through, um, going through Matthew and same thing, obeying God out of love is not in opposition to obeying God out of duty. It's just the love has to lead it. But obviously he's the creator. We're the creature. He commands something. We're supposed to do it. And there's more passages than just that one that, you know, tells us we have a sense of duty and that's okay. 
That's okay. I mean, so I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loves the church and, you know, sacrifice for her and lead her and wash her with the water of the word. There's a lot of imperatives there. So those things are my duty, but my motive is love. Um, if you do it without the love, what's the point of the duty? It's hypocrisy at that point. And so that might be what he's getting at. That's what I would assume he's getting at. But the, but the bottom, the bottom line is I perform my duty because I love God. And when I shirk my duty, it's simply because I'm loving something else more than I'm loving him. These are two things that a real believer can't tear asunder. Uh, the false believers already torn them asunder. Um, and it goes one of two ways, either legalism or antinomianism. The legalist, it's all duty, 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 duty. Um, the antinomians, it's all presumptuousness on God. Wow, he loves me because he's God, so I could just keep doing what I want. And so I don't have to do my duty. Um, and yeah, those two, those are two heresies. And I think uh, Dr. White was focusing on the first of those heresies. But I would be willing to bet my yarmulke that if you were able to ask him the question you just asked us, he would probably say something similar to, to what I'm saying. Copy that. Cool. Thank you very much. Next. All right, one's coming. The beard of knowledge. Once again. Okay, my son had a question with regards to Revelation 9, um, 14, where it talks about, um, you know, the release of the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. What does that mean, bound? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, that's a good question. And I guess the, 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 the thought was, um, I, I guess he had heard that the Euphrates River is about is, is drying up. Is there any kind of connection there? You want me to take this one? Hey, you preached through Revelation, so. It, it's been a minute since I preached through <laughs> Revelation. Um, so a traditional dispensational understanding of this passage envisions the river literally drying up so a massive eastern army could cross Iraq and get into the, the Holy Land. Um, that being said, and, and now people are saying the Euphrates is drying up. This is it. This is it. Let me ask you this. In our day and time, does an army need a river to dry up to get to the other side of it? I mean, we are able to land millions 10,000 miles away on a different continent through air travel. We do it all the time. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Like when, when people look at the Euphrates drying up now, my first question would be like, is this even necessary for an invading army? Number two, um, is this the only time in history the Euphrates has dried up? I'd ask that question. Look back at the historical record. Maybe, maybe something normal's going on or yeah, so, something that's repetitive in history, a normal natural occurrence is going on. And then the, the third issue would be like, okay, let's look closer at Revelation. This, this army that it's talking about clearly isn't a human army. It's, it's a demonic army. Um, and so that being said, and you have angels somehow... Um, keeping the river flowing. Well, look, later we're going to see an abyss that an angel holds a key to and Satan can't get out of that abyss until um, he's released. And we seem to have something very similar here. Uh, a barrier is 
preventing some sort of demonic onslaught. And four angels are guarding that barrier. And at some point that barrier gets lifted. And then you have this, this demonic really unleashing on the earth that's unparalleled to anything we've seen. That is what I think is going on with this because of the details. Remember, everything is metaphorical, spiritual. It, it points back to some Old Testament um, reference. And when you look at it, obviously all these symbols are pointing to something real behind it. You're not just supposed to say, ah, oh, this is where I disagree with the amillennialist that this is just talking about, you know, demonic oppression throughout history. I don't think so. This is a very specific thing that's happening at a specific time. It mentions a day and an hour. Um, and it does seem that revelation is focusing on, uh, an escalation that keeps building and building and building till it reaches a crescendo. And so this is one part of that building. Um, and what I think is, is bound to happen is as we get closer to the end, there's going to be a spirit of satanic worship that is going to just so overtake the world. And it makes sense for there to be the kind of worship of the beast and his image and his mark that we see mentioned in Revelation 13, there would have to be, uh, and an, I would say, an increase of the demonic activity in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, now you could look around and say, well, that increase is happening right now. Think about it. I mean, October 7th happens. Hamas are a bunch of barbarians, and yet the majority world population sees them as the victim. It's crazy. So maybe, maybe some of this barrier has been released already and the hearts of many are growing cold. But I look at this as taking what we're seeing now to a level we can't imagine. And I don't want to imagine it. But that's how, that's how I would answer this one. I don't think it's talking about China. Since we're on the subject of eschatology, um, for somebody who believes that it is important to have an eschatological view, I know most people just go, you know, it all pan out in the end, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it is important because I think our eschatological views uh, kind of dictate how we go about things, you know, whether we're kind of more motivated or not in, in some aspects of it. But I would just say this: What is the as somebody who's still trying to figure out exactly which one he's, he's kind of being a part of that team, so to speak? What is the best argument for the dispensational premillennialism uh, side, in your opinion? I don't think they have a best argument. When I was a dispensational premillennialist, the linchpin argument for me would be some passages make it sound like Jesus can return at any time, and some passages make it sound like he can't return until certain things happen. So how could you possibly put those two together? Ah, you have a rapture that can happen at any time. That's not the second coming. But then once that happens, then there's certain key events that have to happen, and only after those can the second coming happen. That's really, without that, there's no reason for dispensationalism to exist. Um, so that would be their best argument, but I think it, it fails just on, on a, a, a lot of grounds, um, especially the passages that deal with the rapture, words like parousia um, and what they mean. It literally means to, to meet him in the air and imme immediately come back down with him. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a, a strong, powerful argument that they could use besides the one I mentioned. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, every every position's going to say they've got the strongest argument. I believe that historical premillennialism is head and shoulders above all the other positions, and that's why I hold it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say, man, it's the weakest one, but I'm sticking with it. No, um, but yeah. Okay, uh, I apologize. I thought that was the one that, that you held. So I guess I, if I could rephrase my question then, what do you think is the best argument for the historical premillennial view, your view? I'll give you a couple. So it's historical premillennialism. First three centuries of the church, everybody believed this. It wasn't until later that you get an amillennial position. Now, the premillennialism or the killism was the technical word of the early church is not the same as the dispensational version, um, but it's, it's a lot closer to what today we call historical premillennialism. Second thing, I mean, I don't know how people could dismiss this, right? John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. John's personal disciple was Polycarp. Polycarp's personal disciple was Irenaeus. Irenaeus clearly taught a literal Antichrist in the future. He clearly taught these things were not completed in the year 70. He clearly taught that there will be a millennium after Jesus returns. So Jesus must reach. So he was not post-millennial. He was not amillennial. He was premillennial. He was taught by the guy that John taught. And Irenaeus tells you, like in some of his writings, that one of his fondest things was listening to Polycarp speak about his memories of the things John said and did, right? So it would be very strange if John was an amillennialist or a preterist or a postmillennialist. It would be very strange if John was that, and yet Polycarp somehow did not get that memo when John was explaining everything to him, and then Irenaeus didn't get that memo. That is a linchpin for me. And every time people have tried to explain it away, they either question the exegetical ability of Irenaeus or the historical ability of Irenaeus. Well, Irenaeus got certain dates wrong here and there, so you can't trust him. But I'm sorry, the, the majority of scholarship leans in favor of Irenaeus, not some of these minority positions, because it is very hard to argue that a guy that close to the original writing doesn't know what the heck he's talking about, but guys, 2,000 years later, somehow figured this out. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so the historical position to the guys who lived in a time where they have apostolic memory, the language of revelation is their normal spoken language. They think in it. These guys, these guys were premillennialist. You don't get any other position until after the church has found a way to mix Platonism with Christianity. Um, and Platonism, when you have universals as opposed to particulars and stuff like that, it makes sense that that's what the interpretation of Revelation then becomes. That we're now going to see it as, as a, a universal depiction of city of God versus city of man and stuff like that. And I love Augustine and I agree with his approach on history, but I think his eschatology is wrong. So, um, so yeah, I, I would say that's a big one. And then, of course, um, you know, the reason why there's so many eschatological positions is because there's a lot of scriptural uh, data. You know, so some scriptures will say some things that seem to support amillennialism. Others will say things that clearly seem to support premillennialism. Some things seem to imply a postmillennialism, like, like the idea of the kingdom of God being a mustard tree that fills the whole earth. So you have all these different data points, and that's why 
um, when people talk like, oh, these guys are idiots or they're it. No, there's a reason these positions exist. What we have to ask is which position is able to, what's the one ring to rule them all? Which one is able to bring in all the scriptures that the other ones use and find a place for it that does not allegorize it or somehow remove its meaning? And I believe, again, historical premillennialism has the most flexibility for that kind of thing. Now, is it possible I'm wrong? Sure, there's like a 1% chance, but, you know, um, but no, I'm pretty, pretty airtight in my mind on this position. Awesome, awesome. Pastor John, do you hold the same view? If so, could you give me your, why you are a historical premillennial? Yeah, I I think for the same reasons, I think the biggest one is the historical data that, you know, that the fact that John's earliest disciples um, held to this position, like where else would, where where else did they get it from, from their back pocket? Um, To to me, and and, and we do have the historical data to look at these, that this is, these are the things they taught. Um, That's one of the more powerful arguments. Like, yep, this is the oldest position and, you know, we can find it I think with good reason, evidential reason, to find it to the source of the guy who actually wrote the letter. And so, so, so for, for that's one of the many reasons why I'm personally historical premillennialist. But just something to add to, um, to the heart of your question, because I know this is a question that, you know, a lot of people could get cut off, get caught up on. And even hearing those reasons, um, like, ah, oh, I'm still not convinced of stuff like that. And, and my, and my in- exhortation to people is that, you know what, it's good that, that we talk about these things. But we shouldn't talk about these things as if these are the, the, the tier one issues that, like, if, if you don't agree with my position on eschatology, then we can't take bread together. Then, like, like we can't be friends anymore, right? I think when it comes to this topic, it's a tertiary issue. You know, we can disagree and we can still do church together and stuff like that. But bottom line, what can we agree upon, which is, which is absolutely clear in Scripture, is that Christ is going to return. He's going to make all things new. Um, and that until then, we should be making disciples of all the nations um, so that Christ could come to make all things new. Um, and so my exhortation to the Christian, whether you are convinced of historic premillennialism or postmillennialism or millennialism, or you're just a cop, like, eh, it's all going to pan out in the end. My encouragement is that live right now in light of the promise that you have in the gospel that Christ is going to return one day because he has overcome sin and death through his resurrection. And because of that living hope they were as his Christians, allow that to be your greatest encouragement for you to live faithful now, no matter how difficult it gets. Because I remember that when I took my last theology class at seminary, um, I told my professor, like, kind of keeping that reality in mind that this is this is what brings me out of all the doctrines in scripture eschatology brings me the most encouragement because of that reality that Christ has overcome sin and death no matter the timing of how it's all going to go down in the end um, Christ is going to return he's going to make all things new and because I had that living hope through him by faith I can live now no matter no matter how crazy it gets because of my hope that I have in King Jesus so my exhortation to anyone um, who, do, who who's not convinced of one viewpoint don't and who who and for those who do love um, debating this um, you know heavy heated topic that's been going on for the church for the past 2,000 years. Um, just don't forget, um, you know, the essence of, of what we're called to do, and that's just to preach the gospel. And, you know, what we can agree upon is that because Christ is, is resurrected and he will return, don't forget that and live now in light of the age to come. And so I would like to piggyback on that. Um, I've become increasingly more convinced that eschatology should be the most impactful doctrine on the life of the Christian. Um, When we only treat it as a speculative doctrine, we're wrong. As I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings, I mean, really what Jesus is getting at is how do we flourish? 
And you look at those Beatitudes, all the middle Beatitudes were telling us how we are in the present because of what we will be in the future. There is a day where we have to give an account to him, every Christian. Paul says we as Christians in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, will stand before Jesus at the Bema seat and give an account for our good and our bad. As believers, you think of all the stewardship passages where Jesus gives, where the master will call his servants to account. Um, that is something where we should be thinking like, man, we need to make sure that that's going to happen. We need to be serving right. But also, also knowing that we have that future, that glorious future means we can die in the present because we know that's not the final word. Another thing, something that C.S. Lewis said that's really been impacting me lately um, is we all have our own eschatologies. What I mean is you have your end that's coming. And so why should I treat you with dignity? You might say, well, because I'm made in the image of God, and that's true. But C.S. Lewis added a, a, an eschatological twist to this that is really powerful, that a thousand years from now, let's say the Lord does not tarry a thousand more years. A thousand years from now, resurrection's happened. If you're a believer, the you a thousand years from now is a lot more real than the you right now, because that's the you that lasts forever. And that version of you is a glorified being that if I saw you right now, that the you of a thousand years from now, if I saw you right now, I'd be in terror at your glory. We're going to be more splendid. We're going to have more splendor than angels. We're going to judge angels. We're going to be closer to the throne of God than angels. And yet what is the constant temptation of man when they see an angel? The glory of an angel makes them want to worship. Imagine if I see a perfect, glorified, powerful person so united with Christ that they are now imaging the image of God perfectly. That's going to be you a thousand years from now. And that's the real you. And so I need to treat you in light of that reality. But let's say you're an unbeliever. A thousand years from now, what would you be like and look like after a thousand years of God's wrath disfiguring, torturing, tormenting you, and rightly so. Like I think of, and Tolkien helps me with this, because Gollum was under that, that ring, so he started out looking like a hobbit, but when you come across Gollum, he's this disfigured, pathetic, half his teeth are missing, you know, he's just a, he's, he's nasty. But when Frodo sees him, he's like, now that I've seen him, I pity him. The unbeliever that makes me so mad right now, that speaks so high-handedly against God, if I could see that person a million years from now, if they don't repent, of course, what they're going to be then is going to be so hideous, so terrifying, that all I could do is look at them with the greatest pity rather than indignation. And so that's another point where like eschatology now affects the way we think about people that we're sharing the gospel with, people we're arguing with, people we're, we're having issues with. And so... Again, it is one of the most important doctrines for our sanctification and how we're supposed to be living right now. And for anyone who's curious on where C.S. Lewis said that, he wrote it in one of his most famous essays called The Weight of Glory. It's like a 20-minute read. It's really a very good essay. You can find it free online. Um, I recommend you go check it out. Wow, that was, that was amazing. You just, if I can make a suggestion, clip all of that. <laughs> all that needs to be on the Internet. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, so we have time for one more question. And then we will be done. So, David? Um, this one is from Chris, uh, Chris Jones online. And so he just asked, uh, what translation by which publishers are absolute heresy 
and to be avoided other than the obvious New World Translation and the Book of Mormon, the ones that are hiding under the name of Christianity. As Jesus warns, beware of those who come in my name. I would recommend this, Chris. Um, if you go onto Sermon Audio, our Sermon Audio, and you click on the sermons and you click on series, and um, you click on my series on systematic theology, if you go back to the earlier lessons, there's going to be one titled, How We Got the English Bible. There might be one or two lectures with that title. Um, one of them, and I believe it's the second one, but if there's only one there, then it means I did it all in one shot, but I don't know how I did it. But the point is, in that one, I go over every single major English translation. Um, the history, who done it, why they done it. Um, and so, again, it, it, it takes a while to go through it all. That being said, New World Translation is obviously problematic. Um, a King James Version given to you by Mormons is problematic because they have additions and tweaks to it that, that they've made. Um, as far as the other ones, I don't know if any of them are outright straight up heretical, but some are more problematic than others. Like the TNIV trying to use gender neutral pronouns um, for, for God to not offend feminists. I mean, a lot of times when you're reading it, you could barely tell. But the fact that they did that and the reason they did that, there's a reason why very few people will buy the TNIV. They're, they'd rather stick with the NIV uh, 1984. Um, likewise, you, you have um, the NRSV. Um, it's not bad. It's fairly accurate. But there's some decisions they made to placate feminists. So it's not that these are heretical Bibles that are going to lead you to hell, but it's good to know the, yeah, I would say a paragraph's worth of information about all of them. So you could know which ones it's bet. Like I wouldn't pick those ones for my regular Bible study. Now there's other ones like that are paraphrases. And so somebody will tell you, well, if a paraphrase helps you understand it, then go ahead and read it. That's good. But then other people will be like, but now you're getting somebody's opinion rather than the actual words. Why not trust the Holy Spirit to, uh, you know, show you what it means through the actual words? Um, and then, of course, some people will be like, you need a translation that is word for word, not thought for thought. And then others will say, no, thought for thought maps onto your current language better. And these arguments could go on and on and on. Um, I have found that the majority of people who say this is the most accurate translation are people that don't know Greek or Hebrew. Um, because once you learn those and you start translating, you realize there's, there's quite a few possibilities, especially when it comes to uh, Greek participles. My goodness, you have some flexibility with how you're going to render that. So um, this idea that you could have a word for word translation, it's just it's not true. Um, but you can translate word for word as much as possible and then, you know, do some of those uh, smoothing overs. Uh, I like the Christian Standard Bible. I think they hit it perfectly. There's a reason I don't like the ESV. I think the ESV is faithful. I think it's accurate. But the ESV has a pre-commitment to um, maintaining King James Bible sentence structure. That is a sentence structure of a mode of English that was written and spoken 400 years ago. I don't think we have to be beholden to the KJV. You could venerate it. You could be happy for what it has done for the English language. But I think if you're going to make a, a Bible translation for a fresh translation for people who speak English today, start just with the text in Greek and Hebrew 
and translate it to our current English vernacular. That's what the CSB does. Don't say, well, we're going to do that, but we also have to map it a certain percentage onto King James. Why? Why? You've now created a middleman that's unnecessary. Again, faithful translation, but there's a reason why people's reading comprehension of it is less than it would be with, let's say, a CSB um, or even an NASB. Listen, the New American Standard is very choppy because it's, uh, it's, it's as wooden as you could be. But people's reading comprehension of it, in my opinion, is probably a little better than, let's say, the King James, because it's not beholden to those old sentence structures. Um, I think sentence structure matters sometimes more than word choice at times. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to weigh that. So in answer to your question, Chris, uh, there's not a lot that I would say absolutely stay away from, but go check out that lecture. It'll give you the, um, you know, the, the, the basic rundown of all the major translations we're dealing with today. I think you can do one more. Okay. The 727. <laughs> this one just really quick. It's on uh, YouTube. Um, I have a friend who has left his old church and has not attended church in a long time since then. Should I continue my friendship with him or treat him as an unbeliever? Say, say that whole thing again. For some reason, I was too busy thinking about the ESV versus the CSB <laughs> on a particular verse. And I, and I was in my own little world. Because sometimes ESV does do some verses better. But anyhow, uh, uh, go on. Sorry. <laughs> um, it says, I have a friend who has left his old church and has not attended church in a long time since then. Should I continue <clears throat> my friendship with him or treat him as an unbeliever? Well, excommunication is a matter of the church. It's not a matter of an individual, right? So has his church excommunicated him? And it could be the type of thing, well, his church doesn't believe in excommunication. Well, that complicates things. I would say that uh, if, if you are not part of the same body as him, where you have covenanted together to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, then keep that line open and keep calling him to repentance. But if you know he's in sin and you really are his friend, you can't just settle for the sin and be like, well, we're going to chill and have fun and go to Dodgers games and stuff like that. And I'm just never going to bring up his sin because I value the friendship. No, if you value the friendship, leverage that friendship to open up the Bible with him and say, bro, you're, you're not doing this right. You're, you need to be involved in a local church. Um, and if there was bad blood that happened at the last church, you got to go reconcile with them first before you move on to a different church and just keep pushing them towards that. If, if you completely cut it off, who else is in the person's life that's going to tell them this? You're, you're uniquely there um, to snatch your brother out of the fire, as, as James would say. Again, it would be different if you're part of the same fellowship, the person was excommunicated and they're just high-handedly you know, um, resisting every attempt that... God's instrument, the local church has used to call them to repentance. If they're fighting against that, then no, part of that shunning, part of that handing them over to Satan is the judgment of God on them designed to bring them to repentance. Um, so hopefully given those two sides helps answer his question. All right. Well, we are at 730. So what we will do is we will close in prayer and then uh, that'll be it. Uh, brother, do you want to close us in prayer? Let's I know it. I talk too much. There you go, bro. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this night that you've given us. Just uh, have an opportunity just to ask some questions, Lord, that, um, for the people in the congregation. 
to ask, Lord, Father. Um, I just pray that their answers have been answered, and if and if there's still parts of, of, of hesitation, that, Lord, they have enough information and data, Lord, to, to, to continue to study this themselves through the Scriptures, Lord. And, Father, if anyone else has questions, Lord, that God, that the that sovereign way will not be hesitant, Lord, to wait to ask these questions, Lord, at the next Q&A a year from now, if, if that if that's the time limit. But, Lord, to talk to other brothers and sisters, Lord, to talk about these things. We're meant to do theology and community, and, Lord, it's when we discuss our, our, our studies of the Scriptures, Lord, that will not only help us to, um, to preserve orthodoxy at arriving at faithful biblical interpretations of your word and how we should live in light of it, Lord, but, God, it can only make us stronger um, by reading your word together as the people of God who not only know it, but who obey it out of our love for you. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we just pray that you just be with our brothers and sisters this week so that, Lord, they can just um, continue to make disciples of all the nations, and God is to continue growing in their obedience of you um, by loving you with all their hearts so and mind and strength and their neighbors themselves. So, Lord, we thank you. We lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.